0: Welcome to Money Matters, the podcast that focuses on how to use the money you have, make the money you need, and save the money you want. Now, here is your host, Ms. Kim Chapman.
1: Welcome. Another day and another opportunity for me to talk about money, one of my favorite subjects. And if you like learning about money or talking about money, you're in the right place. You're listening to Money Matters. Let's go ahead and get started with my quote. College is part of the American dream. It shouldn't be part of a financial nightmare. I'll let you sit and think about that for a second. Has the pursuit of higher education come with a price tag that's too much for us to bear? Listen to a few statistics I have. The national debt for student loan is $1.75 trillion. The average amount owed per ball is $28,950. And about 92% of all student debt are federal student loans. The remaining amount is a private student loan. That's a lot of money. Is there a better way to pay for college education without racking up student loan debt? Today we will talk about the benefits and the pitfalls of student loans, some alternatives to borrowing money, and what proactive steps students can take now to either reduce or eliminate the need to borrow money for college. So whether you're a parent, a high school student, or maybe even younger, Today is the show that you don't want to miss. My guest today is Ms. Deborah Paul. Deborah is a scholarship grant director for the Louisiana Office of Student Financial Aid Assistance, a program of the Louisiana Board of Regents that, administre- that administers tops and several other post-secondary scholarship and grant programs. Over the last 20 years, she has worked as a financial aid counselor at her alma mater, Southern University, and maybe I should correct them and say the Southern University in Baton Rouge, and a counselor and assistant director of loans at LSU, and the compliance coordinator for the Southern University Department of Athletics. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you, Kim. I'm so glad you are with me. Uh, DeBora and I met several years ago actually at another workshop where basically we were both talking about financial aid and money for um, students that wanted to prepare for school. And I can tell you both personally and professionally she has definitely been an asset to me. She's helped me with other workshops, and, of course, I've got a junior in college and a junior in high school, so I'm going to keep her around as a good friend for a long
0: time. Thank you, Kim.
1: So we're going to go ahead and get started. FAFSA. We couldn't talk about student loans or financial aid without FAFSA. So I'm going to go ahead and define what FAFSA is, right? Free application of federal student aid. But go ahead and tell our listeners, what is FAFSA? Uh,
0: The FAFSA is, as you said, the free application for federal student aid. And that is the starting point to uh, looking at aid for post-secondary education. So whether you're going to a vocational, technical school, proprietary cosmetology, two-year, four-year. In order to uh, seek assistance from the federal government programs, the FAFSA is required. So once you fill out the FAFSA, it opens opportunities for uh, grants and loan programs to determine your eligibility for those.
1: All right, and I know this is for high school students. How soon do students have the opportunity to fill out a FAFSA? Is it their junior year, their senior year high school, or can they even fill it out sooner than that?
0: Uh, Students who are seniors can begin completing the FAFSA on October 1st of their senior year. So that's a little bit early. It used to be January of your senior year, but now it's October. So that makes it um, students don't have the anxiety of having to deal with all the graduation uh, decisions and other things that come across senior year. So October 1st, you're fresh into the senior year, you can complete the FAFSA. So that is out of the way. And then one thing that changed also is that uh, the FAFSA uses prior, prior tax information, so the students don't have to be concerned about, well, they haven't filed taxes yet and so forth because you're using the income tax information from two years prior. So anyone who is out of school, maybe you have a returning adult in their 20s or 30s who want to seek post-secondary education, they can complete the FAFSA. So right now we're in the 21-22 academic year. And this fall will be the beginning of the twenty two twenty three 23 academic year. So someone looking for a financial aid right now would complete the 2022-2023 uh, FAFSA application, and that is available online.
1: Okay, and I know that recently, and I'm not sure how recently, they made FAFSA a graduation requirement. And so do you have any insight as to why they had to make it a requirement, and are there any exceptions, are there any cases where a student may not have to fill out a FAFSA?
0: Okay, the uh, Department of Education, in conjunction with the Bessie board, uh, made that a requirement. Uh, one, because too many students... We're leaving money on the table. Students who may have qualified for financial aid were not applying. So it's a requirement for public high school students. So those parochial and private schools, they aren't required. And just in the last four or five years, Louisiana has ranked in the top three, usually battling with the state of Tennessee for for completion. So it gives students an opportunity to see, uh, because most of the time students will tell you, I can't afford to go to college. And then you say, why? Well, I don't have the money. Then the next question is, have you completed the FAFSA? No, I haven't. So by making that a requirement, students can see options. Some students may decide, oh, I want I want to do a short-term program. You know, maybe a one-year technical diploma or a certificate, or I might want to do cosmetology, those short-term programs. But by filling out the FAFSA, it gives students the option to look at what we call stackable credentials. So a student may say, oh, I want to be an electrician. And then they may come back and say, Well, maybe I want to do construction management so they can build from that electrical degree or that um, carpentry degree, and then build and go into an associate program in construction management, and then even a, a bachelor's degree. So it gives them a the chance to see what's available to them, how much uh, aid is available from what programs, and that sort of thing. So who's
1: responsible for filling out the
0: fast food? Is the student or is it the parent, or is it a combination of both? Um, that's a good question, Kim, and it just depends. If the student is a dependent student, which usually a student in high school is dependent. They're under the age of 24, and in most and in most cases, they have not um, served in the military and become a veteran. Uh, those students, they don't have a dependent that they provide the support for. Basically, they're a dependent student, which means they would use the parental information of the parent who they lived with for the most part of the previous year. So your students who are seniors in high school now are graduating this month, actually. Uh, they're living with their mother, that's who income they would use on the FAFSA. Now, they may have been claimed by maybe another parent or someone else on a tax return. That's totally separate. The FAFSA is who you lived with. And one thing I want to bring up is that the federal government requires parents to pay for their children to go to college. The federal government resources come in where the parent resources fall short. I am keep saying parent That's important because some students may be living with a relative like a grandparent or maybe a neighbor or a counselor, a teacher, a mentor. They are not responsible for putting that child through college. The parent is. So if the parent resources fall short, maybe the parent is deceased or the parent is incarcerated or incapacitated physically or mentally where they cannot provide support, then that's a whole set of different circumstances that we can talk about as we go through this um, podcast. But students would need their parent information. If the parents are married, they would need the information of both parents in that household. If the student's biological parents are divorced, maybe they're living with their father and stepmother, they would use the father and stepmother's information. Conversely, if they're living with the mother and stepdad and they're married, they would use that information as far as the parent information on the financial aid application. And is filling it out a one-time deal? Uh, No, you have to complete the FAFSA every year. The FAFSA is, for instance, if you're completing the FAFSA for the 22-23 academic year, that starts in July of 2022, and it goes through June of 2023. So every year you complete the FAFSA. And one reason is that circumstances change. A student may or may not qualify for, say, a Pell Grant the first time, And then there's something maybe unfortunate like a job loss or a change in circumstances, and that student may qualify for need-based, which is a Pell Grant, the next year. So it's important that they complete the FAFSA every year. And what type of assistance does the FAFSA basically determine that a student will have access to? Uh, Well, it looks at your eligibility for need-based aid and non-need-based aid. So when you look at need-based aid, that is considered a grant or free money that does not have to be repaid. So when you fill out the FAFSA, they'll look at your eligibility for the biggest need grant uh, program, need-based program, which is the Pell Grant. So Pell Grant is need-based. It doesn't matter where you're going to school. If you qualify for a Pell Grant, you receive that amount of money, whether it's Harvard or Howard or Baton Rouge Community College or LSU or Southern, any school, your eligibility is based on the information on the FAFSA, not the cost of the school. So a student will look at need-based programs like the Pell Grant. Another federal need-based program is called SEOG, which is an acronym for Supplemental Educational Opportunity Grant. So it's Pell Grant, S-E-O-G. And here in Louisiana, uh, the Office of Student Financial Assistance, we have another program called the Goal Grant. And that is a need-based grant for Louisiana residents. And the only criteria for that program is that the student apply for and receive a Pell Grant. So if you receive a Pell Grant, you automatically considered for a Louisiana Goal Grant. So those are the need-based programs. There's also Federal Work Study, which provides students with work opportunities while they're enrolled in college that they can use that the funds from those particular uh, work experiences to help in their educational costs. Federal work study is also need-based. Then you get to the loan programs. You have two types of federal direct loans. You have subsidized loans and unsubsidized loans. Federal subsidized loans means the student has financial need. And particularly what happens in that situation is that the student can borrow money And the federal government will pay the interest on those loans while the student is enrolled. On the other hand, students who do not qualify for need-based aid, even a need-based subsidized loan, they can qualify for the unsubsidized loan. The loan amounts are the same, but the difference is that the student on the unsubsidized loan program is charged interest while they're enrolled in school. And then, of course, everyone starts paying interest when you go into repayment.
1: So I want to kind of go back, and we talked about the dependent student needing their parents' participation. What happens in a circumstance where you may have a student, they may live with their parents, they may live with their guardians, but they're not getting that participation. They're not willing to do taxes, or maybe they don't feel that they are equipped to fill out that type of information. What happens with that student, and are there resources available to help students and their families fill out a FAFSA? Mm -hmm.
0: You know, uh, our office uh, provides virtual hours and one-on-one counseling sessions with students regarding that, and it's really unfortunate when parents uh, don't cooperate in helping their kids pursue post-secondary education. Uh, A lot of times we refer the student to talk to their school counselor, and then to also, if they know what college they're going to attend, contact the financial aid office at that school. In a situation where the student is living with the parent and the parent refuses to provide the information on the FAFSA, the student can still complete the FAFSA. But what happens is they will not be determined uh, eligible for any need-based programs. They would only be able to borrow from the student loan programs if the parent is in the home and refuses to provide the information. Then you may have a situation where a student um, is living with someone else and uh, the parent information is not available because, let's just say, uh, if the student uh, parents are both deceased or maybe they were raised by a single parent, they have no um, whereabouts of, say, the father, and then the mother is um, incarcerated, then that student would automatically be considered an independent student, which means they would only have to use their information, their income and resources on the financial aid application even though they may be living with a foster parent or a guardian or a family member in that sort of situation. So it just depends. Each one is unique, but we always, uh, our office uh, provides information regarding that. And then also the financial aid office where the student plans to attend would be another resource. And of course, documentation of all these instances are needed to substantiate making a student from dependent to independent because that's a big thing, and schools get audited by the federal government and so forth. So you want to make sure that the student has documentation. And most of the times uh, the school counselor is a good resource for that documentation because they know that who's on the student's record at school, they can provide usually a letter of support saying this is the situation. Uh, the student may have some information from the Department of Children and Family Services if that was like um, a foster issue, foster parent issue, or some abuse or neglect concerning that, they can use that information. Okay. I want to kind of focus because,
1: of course, we know most people are so aware of the student loans and how they can help, but the problem is that student loan debt. So I want to kind of turn our focus on how can students and families prepare. So we offer a scholarship of the Neighbors Way Tuition Assistance Program, which is offered through our mascot program with 15 schools. And during that process, we actually get to interview students, and one of the uh, questions that we always ask our students in the interview is, "What would you have done differently to increase your college, you know, your college opportunities to have financial aid?" And one thing that we get over and over again is that they wish that they're taking more AP classes or dual enrollment. So, can you speak a little bit on what impact AP courses may have or dual enrollment? For students or, you know, maybe they're still in high school, this may be a great opportunity for them to be able to take advantage of this program or these classes so that when they become a senior and they're ready for college, they can look back and say, I took advantage of everything. So that's what I want to talk about. What are some of the programs that can help students prepare financially for college without having to do student loans or at least minimize the amount they have to take?
0: Well, you know, you always hear the quote that college begins in kindergarten. So at that point, you know, students should start thinking, well, at least have the parents helping them to think about, you want to go to college, this is what you have to do. So I say preparation is the biggest part. And I advise students, when you get to middle school, start uh, preparing a resume. It's simple as getting a notebook. You know, in fifth grade, I received the award for the best um, high score in math, or I won the spelling bee, or I was in the junior beta club, I was elected state president. Keep those things in a booklet because once you get to 11th and 12th grade and you start applying for scholarships, you can go back and say, oh, yes, in middle school I won the uh, state award for Spanish because I was the best Spanish speaker or interpreter at the um, foreign language convention and that sort of thing. So keep a record of what you're doing. Uh, Now there are so, so many more opportunities for dual enrollment than there were say 10, 15, 20 years ago. Just in the public school system in Louisiana, each high school, is required to teach at least one AP or dual enrollment class on that campus. And you say AP, well, AP courses uh, is advanced placement, acronym for that. So once a student completes an AP course, they can take the exam at the end of the year. And the AP exam is based on a score of zero to five. If a student scores at least a three on that AP exam, guess what? They get college credit for that course. So if you're taking AP courses and some students do qualify to start taking AP courses in ninth grade, if they take one or two AP courses, just say two a year, so by the time they graduate high school, that's eight courses. Uh yeah, eight courses. So eight courses, that's really 24 hours of college. And that's basically almost one year of college out of the way. So when you think about what it costs to go to college, if you've earned a year of college while in high school, look at the savings. You can maybe get out of college in three years as opposed to four. Or maybe pursue a double major because you got those courses out of the way. There are a lot of opportunities for dual enrollment courses where students will get credit for simultaneously enrolling in a high school course and they'll get in college credit. So what does that mean? Students need to prepare early. Start taking the ACT and the SAT in seventh grade, eighth grade. Because when you get to ninth grade, you may be able to uh, start taking those dual enrollment courses, AP courses, and that's a big savings. And I've seen student transcripts where they've earned 45 hours of uh, either between dual enrollment and AP courses while they're in high school. So they're starting off mid-year sophomore and say those students get a top scholarship. They only need tops for, say, two and a half years. Well, now I want to go to law school or medical school. I want to get a master's in public policy. They can do that because they can still have TOPS money to help pay for post-secondary, well, post-graduate work. So it's important preparation and look at all those opportunities available.
1: And I'm listening to you say that they can already be a sophomore because they're going to get those college credits. And they're doing this in high school. So if you're in a public school, a free high school, are there any costs associated to take dual enrollment or the advanced placement courses?
0: Not in the high schools. No, those are offered um, with the AP courses they're offering and they don't. require the student to uh, pay for the end-of-the-year exam uh, for that particular course because the high school is offering that course. Maybe on the private side, the students may have to pay, but I think it's $75. It used to be 75 bucks. When you think about it, $75 and you're getting three hours of college credit? Compared to what it costs to actually pay the university that's for a, those three hours. That's a great deal. So, yeah, so there's no cost. And dual enrollment... Uh, they're funded by various sources in Louisiana. Uh, for instance, we have SCA, which is supplemental course allocation. That program is funded by the Louisiana Department of Education and each school district gets a certain uh, allocation of funding for their dual enrollment. So some students take dual enrollment through SCA. Uh, some school districts because the um, school each school district has a performance score, right? So in order to, uh, one of the things that are factored into their performance score is how many students get uh, to take dual enrollment while they're in high school. So some school districts use some of their funding to uh, provide dual enrollment opportunities. And then we also have the uh, Topps Tech Early Start Program, which provides dual enrollment classes for students who want to do a vocational or technical degree area. So there are many opportunities that students can um, do dual enrollment. Also in summers between 11th and 12th grade, For example, my son, um, he went to a private high school, but then he went to a college, pre-college program after 11th grade, and he was able to earn seven hours through that summer program prior to his senior year. So, I mean, it cost a couple of thousand dollars, but it was a great experience. He got a taste of what college life was like, lived in a dorm and earned seven hours, you know, prior to going into senior year. So there are a lot of opportunities available out there.
1: Well, based on this conversation, I thought I was going to get to rest tomorrow, but it sounds like I need to be in my attic because you mentioned that we need to start saving certificates and awards from fifth grade. And I had planned to ask you, so what are some of those things that students should be doing in high school? But you're saying this actually dates back to elementary. So I need to get in the attic. But what are some other things? What are, what are things students can do that are already in high school that will definitely increase their opportunities
0: for scholarships? Um, There are a variety of things. You hear about the top scholarship, which is academic-based. Then you also know about the athletic scholarships. Oh, she's going to college here on a volleyball scholarship or tennis or football, basketball, baseball. But there are so many other scholarships that are based on what your talent, skills, and abilities are. A student may be a um, good public presenter, public speaking. There are a lot of oratory contests. Uh, The student may sing or they may play a musical instrument. There may be a cheerleader. Those are all scholarship opportunities. If you're a cheerleader in high school, you can try out for a cheerleading squad. And most colleges now have cheerleaders. There's a basketball cheerleading team. Then there's one, there's an all-girl squad and there's a co-ed squad. So there are a lot of cheerleading opportunities at the college level. Uh, students who may um, uh, perform just different skills, maybe piano or recital. You can get a music scholarship because now you sing in the school's um, a mass choir or the school's uh, orchestra. You might play in the orchestra. So there are a lot of opportunities with on um, the music side, public speaking, uh, just different talents that are available to students. So they should look at all of that and not just think an academic scholarship because I have a 3.5 and a 30 on the ACT. There are other opportunities depending on what your major is. So focus on those things too to see, you know, maybe you're, you belong to the Beta Club or you're in the National Honor Society. Those may provide scholarship opportunities. And then look around in your community Uh, Sometimes students want to look apply for the big scholarships, the Bill Gates Scholarship, the Walmart Scholarships, and so forth. And when you read the fine print, you may see that we expect 100,000 applicants and we're going to give out five awards. But then if you look, maybe your parent is in the sorority fraternity and their graduate chapter has a scholarship, and there might be 30 students applying and they're giving out five awards. Well, that's, you know, you have a 5 in 20 chance of getting one of those scholarships. So look locally. Uh, There are several foundations in the Baton Rouge area, like Baton Rouge Area Foundation, the Pennington Foundation, the Hugh and Angelina Wilson Foundation. All of those groups provide scholarships to students for various opportunities. So they should explore the local scholarships. I know the Greater Baton Rouge State Fair, and every year when the uh, fair comes around in October, they give out scholarships to I think almost every high school in the Baton Rouge area for students based on volunteerism. So that's another opportunity. If you like to volunteer, you may be able to apply for a scholarship based on that. Some students with uh certain medical conditions, there are scholarships designated for that. Um example, my son um was uh cancer he recovered from cancer and the American Cancer Society gave him a one-year scholarship for college because he was a cancer survivor. So there are some students who may have other uh, illnesses or diseases that may have scholarships directed to those particular um, situations.
1: How soon should students start looking and applying for these scholarships?
0: It's never too early. So maybe you're in ninth grade and you win a singing contest. That may provide a scholarship, and that scholarship will be available to you and put on hold until you graduate. So it's always a process of looking uh, for what's available. I always say look for free scholarship searches. And our website at mylosfa.la.gov offers free scholarship searches, and we also post scholarships monthly. But look around and see and, you know, ask questions. Maybe you belong to a church that provides a scholarship for its uh, membership who are seniors in high school. So there you know, some colleges are religious-based. For instance, Dillard University is affiliated with the Methodist Church. So you may want to look at that. Uh, Louisiana College, which just changed their name, but they're affiliated with the Baptist Church. So there are some some colleges that are affiliated with certain uh, religious denominations that provide scholarships. So look there. Just no stone is unturned when it comes to finding scholarships.
1: So if you have a student that's really ambitious and they're listening to this podcast and they leave and they're like, I'm going to apply for this, I'm going to apply for that, is there a circumstance
0: where a student can accumulate too much money in scholarships? Very seldom. The only way you, if you fill out the FAFSA, that means you are putting yourself in a financial aid budget, which means the school says, okay, you fill out the FAFSA, your cost of attendance, which is includes factors like tuition, books, fees, room and board, transportation, miscellaneous, that's your budget. So you cannot receive more than what your financial aid budget is. But on the other hand, if you decide, I'm not going to fill out the FASFA, I'm just going to apply for all of these scholarships, some students could really um, make enough money to um, save for graduate school or maybe um, get some other luxuries while they're in school. Because if you're just applying for scholarships, maybe you apply for one scholarship and you get lucky and it's worth $50,000 a year. If you don't complete the FASFA, then you would get that money. But most now most scholarship corporations are requiring students to fill out the FAFSA because it saves them money. For instance, uh, the Bill Gates Scholarship is one that's very popular. And students think, oh, I got the Bill Gates, it pays for everything. But the Bill Gates Scholarship requires you to complete the FAFSA. So if you complete the FAFSA, one of the requirements for Bill Gates is that you qualify for Pell Grant. So guess what? The Pell Grant and everything else that the school offers will come off the bill first. Then whatever is left over... That's where the Bill Gates Scholarship comes in. So in some instances, the Bill Gates Scholarship will not cover as much for one student as another because that one student has TOPS, they have a Pell Grant, they have SEOG, they have work study. But the Bill Gates, if they still need, say, $5,000, dollars it will put that money in. If they're going to a private school, the remaining balance may be $15,000, and Bill Gates will add that on.
1: Okay, and you've mentioned T.O.P.S. a couple of times. I know that that's kind of a household name if you have a student in high school that's planning to go to college in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about T.O.P.S. and how that can be a benefit for high school students
0: going to college. Well, one thing I always say about T.O.P.S. is there's no competition among, any, among your peers when you're looking at T.O.P.S. If you meet the requirements for T.O.P.S., guess what? You get the money. So it's not we're only going to give out $1,000, 10000 20000 30000 It's individualized. So if a student who earns at least a 20 on the ACT uh, take a specified high school core curriculum and have a 2.5 GPA, they can get tuition at a two- or four-year college for up to eight semesters. Students who score higher on the ACT uh, and higher GPAs, they can get the performance award, which this year went up to 3.25 GPA, but a 23 on the ACT. The honors award which gives students an additional $400 a semester, requires at least a 27 on the ACT and a 3.25 high school GPA. So that's available to students. Students who don't meet those higher requirements, they can still get the TOPS Tech Award. And TOPS Tech is for students who want to pursue a vocational or technical uh, degree area. They need at least a 17 on the ACT and a 2.5 in certain high school courses through the Jumpstart curriculum they can get tuition at a two-year program. So those are available for students in that arena. Then you also have other programs that may come into play. And so,
1: of course, I know in every school there are going to be those late bloomers, and we keep hearing that 2.5 GPA. Are there opportunities for students that don't quite get that 2.5? Maybe they have a 2.0, maybe even lower than that. Are there opportunities for these students to be able to get free funds, through scholarships, or even through FAFSA?
0: Well, with the FAFSA, that would be the first thing I would look at. If, they're, if they uh, qualify for need-based aid, that would be the route to go if the GPA is not at least a 2.5. So those students would receive the Pell Grant. And in order to continue receiving Pell Grant from year to year, you have to meet the school's satisfactory academic progress requirements. And in most cases, that's a 2.0 and pass at least 67 percent of the courses that you enroll in, which means if you start off with 15 hours and you only earn six and you had a 4.0 and you do that year round, you're not going to meet the SAP requirements because you're not passing enough hours because you started off with 15. Now you're at six. So it just um, it depends on uh, what those programs are. So they should just look at the requirements for that. But then, some students who may not have a 2.0, they may be a good musician. Maybe they can apply to be in the band and get a drum line scholarship, or they might um, be a good athlete. So, not all scholarships are based on GPA. So, they shouldn't say, because I don't have a 2.5, I'm not going to go to college, I'm not going to look at scholarships, because you may have other talents that would warrant you um, consideration.
1: And I know a lot of our focus has been on graduating students, high school students that are about to enter their freshman year in college, which I know a lot of scholarships are based on that particular criteria. Are there opportunities for second-year college students, third-year, or maybe somebody that took that gap year, if you will, and maybe they waited a year or two before entering college? Are there opportunities for them, would those students even still have to
0: fill out a FAFSA if they didn't go immediately into college? Um, for, stu- for To preserve your TOPS eligibility, you need to apply uh, by July 1st after your high school graduation. So you could still take a gap year, qualify for T.O.P.S., and decide you want to tour you know, Europe for a year before you start college, and that would be held in place for you. Now, for those students who are um, returning second, third, fourth year, again, it's a lot faster for those years. And then maybe out of high school you only had a 2.8 GPA, but then you, re- you, ha- you were at a high school with a strong, hard academic background, and then you get to college and you say, oh, this is easy. And you end up... at the end of your freshman year. Maybe you're majoring in computer science and you can go to the computer science department and say, I have a 3.5 GPA after my first year. Can I um, apply for a scholarship with you all? Even some of the honors colleges, you may not qualify out of high school, but if you have a good academic record, a sound record at the end of your freshman year, you can approach the honors college and say, "Um, I want to apply to be a member and get a scholarship. So just not looking at what happens at the end of high school because some students with high academic credentials don't fare as well in college because they think it's going to be easier than it is and others who worked hard in high school they get to college and realize all my hard work is paying off and now I'm doing better. Okay so we've got through Fastful, we've talked about TOPS we've talked about those scholarships
1: and so what is the role I wanted to talk a little bit about guidance counselors because I know that they're supposed to be in place to help students but if, you know unfortunately often we've come in contact with students and they're just at a loss they know about fafsa but they don't have any guidance or directions what should they be asking what questions should they be asking their guidance counselors or what should they be expecting from them in terms of helping them prepare for college
0: you know in counseling now is so different uh because the counselors are now inundated with dealing with a lot of social issues that they weren't 20 years ago and uh some schools now are hiring um specialists that deal with just the uh, college readiness side of it so that's been helpful in those ways but there are a lot of resources that students can do on their own particularly with the technology that we have available to us they can go to the um, studentaid.ed.gov which is a federal website that walks you through everything step by step you know ask questions if the parents went to college kind of pick their brains, Uh, look at older siblings who have gone to school and see what the process is, ask questions. The Louisiana Office of Student Financial Assistance at mylosfa.la.gov is another great resource. So there are a lot of online resources to help students. And then to also, a lot of counselors will post information if they still do that outside their uh, counseling doors that tell students this. And then the recruiters. All of the high schools have recruiters that come to events at the high school. So you can, even if you don't want to go to that college, but it might be good to visit that recruiter just to see what they're talking about because the process is going to be the same. You apply for admissions, you apply for financial aid, you fill out a house, you complete your housing deposit, you put in your summer summer orientation. So all of those things are the same, just maybe a little bit different at each college. So, you know, talk to college recruiters if there's a college day. Uh, East Baton Rouge Parish usually has a big career fair in the fall that it's open, there are some uh, day events where some schools are bused in, then there are some night events where students can bring their parents and talk to the college professionals that are out there.
1: And then I want to ask you about preparation for applying for scholarships. I think during COVID, only because of COVID, I ran across this website because I believe this was an organization maybe in Ohio, but basically it was called Mighty Writers, and what this organization did was pull high school students together, and they worked on their writing skills, specifically essay writing skills, because so many essays or so many scholarships are based on it. Every time I tell my son, fell out for a scholarship, that means i got to write another essay. And he absolutely hated it, but I found that this was a resource that could brighten or kind of sharpen your skills. So do you know if any other resources or just tools students can use as they're preparing for to apply for these scholarships, especially if it's going to be essay-based what resources are out there to just give them that advantage?
0: I know one local is a 100 Black Men organization. They provide ACT prep, which would include something on the essay writing side also. And some high schools do actually help students at the end of their junior year to write a really good essay that is on a generic topic so they can use that same essay over and over again for a variety of different scholarships. So that's one of the benefits of some of the high schools who have the staff available to help students write those essays. But I would look at the library. The library is a wealth of information. They provide a lot of resources and, you know, just a matter of going to their website and seeing what's offered, you know, essay, essay writing workshop. So some of the organizations that students are involved in, like the Beta Club and National Honor Society, they may offer those workshops also to the membership to help them in that endeavor. But, you know, it's never too early to start looking at what what's available. If you know that you want to be um, major in aviation, in Louisiana, Louisiana Tech has an aviation program. So look and see what's required there. You know, what high school courses should I be taking and how should I sharpen up on my math skills? Because, you know, you're looking at calculus and those types of things on getting an airplane up and flying and that sort of thing. So look at where you, what you want to major in. So you can do a one of those um, career assessments to see what you're good at. For instance, if you like working outside, but then you say you want to be an accountant, that probably doesn't work well. Or if you say you like working outside, then you're going to have to look at what programs, you know, a therapeutic recreation aid would be a person that wants to work outside or a coach and that sort of thing. So look at where you fit in those career assessment areas and see what it is that you want to do and then start making plans. I mean, you have students in ninth and tenth grade that says, oh, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a doctor or I want to be a physical therapist. You know, students who say I want to be a doctor, but they don't want to take four years of science, that doesn't really work well. So you have to look at where where you want to go, what you want to do, and what it takes you to get there.
1: And I know some of the parents or adults listening are at different stages. Some of them have newborns, and I know many parents like to go ahead and start that college fund as soon as the student is born because we know college has an expense. Then you have some that maybe they're in middle school and they're saying, okay, I've got time. And then, of course, there are some that are graduating probably as we speak, and they're like, oh, my goodness, you know, where do I start from here? So what pieces of advice can you give to parents at each stage in terms of how they should prepare because what college, especially if you have a newborn and you're looking at college, how can they determine how much it's going to be 18 years from now? Uh, Well,
0: one thing that helps, we have a um, 529 education savings plan called START. So you can save for a child. And, you know, for a parent with a newborn, I would save a smaller amount because you're looking at a newborn and 18 years having to access those funds. On the other hand, conversely, if you have a student that's in ninth or 10th grade, you should be a little more aggressive in your savings. Uh, but then, if you know that your child uh, may qualify for maybe an athletic or academic scholarship because of their maybe in ninth grade, they might make a 25 in the ACT. Well, that's pretty high for a ninth grader. So, you can put your resources and Going in that direction saying, okay, so you're probably going to get an academic scholarship. So Maybe there's two other children in the household, and you can divert those funds, particularly with a start account. If you have money in a pot of and a pool for one student and that student doesn't use it, you can always transfer it to another student, another child, or maybe a niece or godchild, and that sort of thing. So look at where you are. You can save, you can be more aggressive when your money is in, uh, not going to be used, as soon. So for a baby, you can find one of the funds, put your money in one of the funds that may earn more money, but you're not putting in as much because you're not going to need it for 18 years. And then if you have a student that is in middle to high school, then you want to be more conservative. in what fund you put your money in, but you want to save more because you realize that you may not qualify for the need-based programs. You don't want to borrow. So you'd have to save the money.
1: And then, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the fact that, you know, in some cases the student may just have to work through school and they may have to work for an outside job. But I did want to just kind of touch base. We talked about work study. Is there
0: a maximum dollar amount that a student can even earn through work study? Uh, It varies, but most students can be awarded up to $3,000 in the academic year. Normally with work study, you can't work more than 20 hours a week. And most of the colleges now, even Pre-COVID, we're paying at least $10 an hour for work-study. And sometimes those work-study experiences can really lead to something full-time or help you find your passion. You, know, you might work in the library and say, I'm going to change my major to library science because I like this library deal. Or maybe you're working in the cafeteria and now I want to be a dietitian. So those can provide opportunities for further education, but they're usually $10 or more per hour and students can usually earn up to about three thousand, or even four thousand, in academic year through the work study program. Then there are you know, also off campus jobs, but you know, work study is a good deal because students are working on campus usually not more than twenty hours a week, which doesn't interfere in them having time to go to class and study, and it's not creating a hardship. You know, students who may earn more money working like as a server in a restaurant and that sort of thing, but they're working weekends, they're working nights. And the owner of a restaurant doesn't care if you have an exam at 6 a.m. and they don't close until midnight, whereas work-study, you might be making less, but the office closes at 5, 6, 7 o'clock at the latest.
1: Well, this has been some really good information because I know we are in the midst of graduation season and you have some parents that are saying, oh, my God, it seems like my baby was just a baby yesterday and now they're ready for college and they're looking at their wallets and they're looking at the cost to attend school and they're panicking. So hopefully, we hope this particular episode has provided a lot of resources for them. I think we shared some good information for how students can get some money without having to Take out those student loans. So thank you so much, Ms. Ms. Deborah, for joining us. And this has been Money Matters. And next we will have the Money Minute. (music) Early planning is the key to creating a plan for paying for college. If If you don't want to take out student loans, but student loans become necessary, these are some tips that may help you along the way. Consider working and only paying for classes that you can afford. This may take you a little bit longer, but graduating debt free is worth the sacrifice. If you have to take out student loans, only borrow what you need. Borrowing for your wants will surely come back to haunt you when it's time to pay back. And then don't go it alone. Contact your school's guidance counselor or financial aid office to help you find money, free money, to pay for college. And finally, Check out neighborsfcu.org slash financial education to learn more on how to save the money you have, make the money you need, and save the money you want.